Hey, what's up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm James. And today we're going to be doing a musician episode on Whiplash and La La Land, which were both uh, directed by Damien Chazelle. And we also have a special guest today. We have a, an actual jazz drummer who's going to give us his expertise and experience and insight into the world of jazz drumming in regards to Whiplash and the authenticity of the film. And if it's like movie fluff in terms of like the bloody hands and the intense and insane instructors. And so we're going to get like a real life experience of that world. Both of these films are really fantastic. Whiplash was an excellent debut for Damon Chazelle. And uh, La La Land obviously won a lot of awards and was widely um, loved by people around the world. I think it made $480 million or something. So it was a big hit. And he showed his, his uh, technical prowess and his uh, real talent for directing. He uses a lot of old techniques and, and brings it into the contemporary film world, and he shoots on film. Um, and his, his films look fantastic, and the stories are always uh, really uh, interesting and very good conflicts. And then if you watch Jam Damien Chazelle movies, every single one of his movies, they end the same way with two characters looking at each other. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Whiplash at the final show, and then with La La Land at the jazz club. And then in First Man, the two of them looking at each other through the glass. Yeah, so I would say that Damien has a few main signatures as a filmmaker in terms of relatable characters and interesting characters. Uh, terrific music uh, by Justin Hurwitz and a powerfully intense ending like you just brought up. And it seems to have his movies like have almost like two climaxes in a way at the end. Like there's like the subtle, this movie could end like this sort of way, but then it always spends another final epilogue or a final act with a new ending. I think it's um he has longer third acts than usual is what it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that and the, but that first kind of climax sets up the final climax, mm -hmm. which always ends in the final shot, like you just said, of the two characters looking at each other. And his films also open up in sort of like overtures, if you want to call them that. And like the when we're talking about Whiplash specifically, I love the way he opens this film because you could take like a normal film, any other filmmaker, any other screenwriter, and they'd probably, here's this new student going to a music school, and here's him walking to class or whatever. You can see a typical way that do it. But the way he does it is that great drum roll with black, and then he, he cuts to Andrew drumming, and then he shows you both of these main characters within a minute, mm -hmm. and you kind of get great characterization of both of them. And then the same thing with La La Land, we have that great opening dance monologue scene. All three of his films, even First Man, his characters seem to always be centered upon a ha becoming obsessive about a goal um, because in Whiplash Andrew becomes obsessive about drumming um, to become as good as he possibly can and in La La Land both Mia and Seb decide that they both have to um, commit completely to both of their individual passions to find their own success um, which ends up being the reason why they can't be together and then and then in First Man Neil Armstrong becomes obsessive about uh, making it to the moon successfully so uh, I think that he has a uh, he has a passion for people who have a passion. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And he won the Oscar for Best Director for La La Land, which was a massive accomplishment for someone at the age of 31 at the time, which is insane. And again, we've talked about directors like Martin Scorsese, who didn't win a Best Director Oscar until The Departed, like 40 years into his career. Fucking he, A, Marty. That guy's made like 80 movies, and it took that long <laughs> to get an Oscar. He's then, made like five masterpieces. And then, then Chazelle's made two movies, which is, I mean, not saying that La La Land is not a great directing performance, but then... um. I mean, again, Chris Nolan didn't even get a nomination until Dunkirk. So uh, I think that speaks volumes to how receptive people were to the film level and how much everyone loved it. The best way to support Raiders of Lost Podcast is to become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Raiders of Lost Podcast and become a $2, $5, or $10 patron. 
every tier gets specific perks like personalized messages, personalized videos, sneak peeks at upcoming episodes, and top tier patrons get a monthly shout out on the podcast the first week of every month. Let's go. And also, people love musicals, especially film people, especially theater people, obviously. And the Academy really adores musicals. So oftentimes, it's, it's rare to have a, a good musical not get nominated for anything. It's just, it's a it's a classical part of film history, musicals. And so whenever they're made, because they're, they're pretty rare nowadays, so whenever they are made, um, people adore them. And this is a really good one. And what I like about this musical is that... I, I'm not the biggest musical fan, but there are there are a bunch that I, I enjoy, but I don't watch all of them. And this musical is a lot different because typically, generally, most musicals are like different period setting or they have lavish sets and outfits and costuming and they're, they're just very um, otherworldly in a lot of ways. But this musical is very relatable because it's just two people in L.A., contemporary L.A. And so the, the sets aren't extravagant. The costuming is very much what we wear and so i think that uh, chazelle made the musical very relatable especially to people who live in la and so i think that's why people liked it so much yeah and i think with his musical la la land there's a ton of music obviously but also so much dancing and i think what they effectively did just to stay on that topic is they translate the moods and emotions of the film so well not just with music, but with dance, with the characters too. And I think that's what makes it even that takes it up even further in terms of, yes, there are musicals that come out or even just films that have pieces of a musical inside of them. Like we, we talk about like uh, uh, maybe Hail Caesar has bits of stuff like that with those uh, glorious sets from like the, the 40s and 50s Hollywood. And even, I mean, the opening of Indiana Jones uh, a kick um, in a temple of doom that's kind of like a musical setup like what mm -hmm. it used to be that's kind of how like hollywood used to be like movies used to be like this they yeah. would all these all these set pieces uh these dancing tap dancing yeah music and everything like that yeah, so that's exactly. what hollywood used to be like yeah it's like not well how i just said there are only musicals are rare now back then in the 40s 50s musicals were probably the most common type of movie that people saw and so people were really used to seeing musicals that's why i think because a lot of academy voters are much older now because they've been in the the academy for 40 years or so, they still have that great endearing love for musicals. So yeah, I think it, that's why musicals get a lot of love. Yeah, it's like whereas, watching a Gene Kelly movie. Yeah, whereas it's a lot harder for a sci-fi film or a horror film to get nominated for Oscars, you know what I mean? Because those are more sci-fi and horror. They've always been around, but they've only, like in the last um, couple of decades, really peaked and become a much more common occurrence in film. Yeah, and Whiplash isn't a musical, but it has a ton of great jazz music. And I'm sure a lot of people never really had been exposed to jazz on that kind of level, just in your face the entire film, and obviously in the opening of the movie. And it's a, it's a great, really great story. And as much as Whiplash is about obsession, La La Land's probably more, yes, obsession, but also about dreams versus love, I think. Because Whiplash is straight up just Andrew's trying to be the next Charlie Parker. Whereas in La La Land, both um, Mia and Sebastian are trying to balance that situation of, do I choose love and follow down this path, or do I choose my dream path? Very similar ideas, but they're approached in different ways because Mia and Seb, they don't become obsessive like Andrew, but they end up sacrificing um, their relationship to pursue their careers. And Andrew does the same thing, but he he sacrifices everything. Um in a lot of ways, Andrew loses his humanity um, to commit completely to drumming. Like, he breaks up with his girlfriend out of nowhere, and um, his relationship with his father is very strained. And he's pretty much isolating himself and shutting everyone out 
and just becoming obsessed with Fletcher and um, trying to prove to Fletcher that he can be as good as he thinks he is. And so that becomes... So I think it's a, a combination of obsession for Whiplash and passion for following dreams in La La Land. And all three characters, Andrew, Mia, and Sebastian, to me are kind of like... When I look at it, they're like in this sort of limbo where they're, they're very talented, all three of them in their own respective art craft. Um, but they, they need to figure out how to break that ceiling to get into that other world, not otherworldly talent, but to, to chase that dream success. And, and, and achieve yeah. their obsession. And they're all kind of stuck in that. I think it's so relatable because a lot of artists find themselves trapped in that kind of way where do I, do I stay with this person? Is it going to hold me back? And whereas Andrew and Whiplash is so much more quick and non-hesitant to just cut Nicole, his girlfriend, out of his life because he realizes she's going to stand in my way from achieving what I want. So I'm just going to cut the cord. No problems. And he doesn't even regret it until later in the film. Whereas, again, yeah, I mean, later in the film, he, he asked her to see the show. And yeah. She's like, I already have a new boyfriend. Like, yeah. he, he can't he doesn't understand, like, what he did to her. Yeah. And then whereas Sebastian He's also in a limbo, but a different kind of limbo where he's like kind of stuck in the past. All he thinks about is these. Well, Andrew thinks about these legends too, but 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 um, uh, Sebastian's like a purist or a traditionalist with his music, and he wants to keep jazz alive and the old style of jazz alive, and that's why he ends up leaving Keith's band because it's it's not for him because it's not what he believes in. And same thing with Mia, where she's sort of sort of in that actor actress limbo in los angeles you know all these thousands and tens of thousands maybe even more people here trying to pursue that dream of acting and having to deal with auditions and stuff like that so they're all kind of in this artist limbo la is filled with people who are pursuing art and trying to find success in accomplishing their dreams of whatever art form it is i mean obviously lots of people trying to be actors and filmmakers and musicians and artists and uh, LA is the place to do it. So this city is filled with hundreds of thousands of people who are going through the similar exper- experience. And the I think what Chazelle really honestly portrays in a real real way in these films is rejection, because uh, everyone faces so much rejection, especially in acting. Because there's a, there's that great scene of Mia's uh, audition, and and you see Emma Stone just she crushes the scene, the monologue, and she's crying, and she's because she's such a talented actor, and she's amazing in it. And then all of a sudden. Uh, someone knocks on the door and walks into the room and then someone walks past her again and someone's on their phone and she becomes like, what do I like? What do I do? Like she interrupted her amazing monologue. I know so many actors and they put so much into their auditions and they get rejected over and over and over again and, and overlooked and not really given any kind of like notice by casting directors and producers. And so it's a difficult life. Um, for actors to because they have to put so much work in just to get rejected the next day you know what i mean and so and then the same thing with with um andrew and whiplash where fletcher's constantly rejecting him over and over again telling him he's not good enough he he um promotes that other drummer um as a way to challenge andrew andrew thinks it's a slight because he knows he's better than the other drummer but fletcher is always telling him he's not good enough you're not good enough and so and then in terms of Sebastian, his rejection is that no one's giving him a chance. Um, no one wants to listen to jazz, and that's why he has to play you know, holiday music. And that's why he can't open his club, he thinks, because he doesn't think anyone will go. So they all face rejection in different ways in these films. Yeah. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at Manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping year-round. Again, Raiders of the Lost for 20% off and free shipping. Two million men. 
are already using Manscaped products. Two million. You got to get on this. We're on it. They've sent us their lawnmower 3.0 groomer. This thing is like a spaceship for grooming. They've sent us their deodorants, their deodorizers, their colognes, their toe deodorant, their toe spray. It's like your, your toes are so always so fresh and smell amazing after you take your socks after, after a long day. Their briefs are amazing. Shirts are comfortable. They're the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. And we're here to tell you that they're the best products to use for the job. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Fellas, get on this. Ladies, these are great gifts for the men in your life. And I guarantee they will be so excited to get something from Manscaped. Yeah, and I think um, what Chazelle is showing is overcoming obstacles. And of course, I think on the surface for some people, it can look like, are, are they promoting this toxic environment and these and rejection and emotional trauma and abuse and and denial and stuff like that or, or do they think that's a good thing is like is fletcher the only way you can make the next charlie parker is to emotionally torment somebody like this or the only way you can become a great actor is to be rejected a thousand times and the only way to be a great musician is to be be ignored for a decade and i'm not saying that you don't need that to become a musician i don't think that's what Giselle is saying, but I think that what Giselle is saying is that obstacles are the greatest tool to a human being when it comes to achieving goals. You can't achieve great goals if you're just constantly being told, oh, you're doing a great job. It's just like what yeah. Fletcher says um, with Jones and Charlie Parker. If Jones said, oh, great job, Charlie. That was a great performance. And then he, they would never create the next Charlie Parker. So, But also, I don't think he's saying that you have to physically abuse abuse somebody psychologically abuse somebody to yeah. get that out of them that's where it's like it's a movie and it's a little he ups the conflict because it's a movie to make it dramatic like obviously there aren't music teachers out there slapping their students in their faces or telling them like, telling them they're gonna f them like a pig you know what i mean there's no that's not happening i mean that teacher will get fired immediately like fletcher ends up doing but i think that chazelle he had experience with a, a very dominating teacher who he wasn't emotionally abusive but he was scary and then he also based fletcher on a famous jazz mu musician named buddy rich who was famous for his incredibly short temper and um he would often yell at people all the time um and so i think he he put those two characters that he knew about into fletcher and also yes you need to be pushed to f achieve greatness but um, obviously you don't need to be emotionally tormented to achieve greatness. So, but it is a movie. And so I, I don't have a problem with it. It being a little bit unrealistic in terms of like, obviously a music teacher isn't going to be like this, no matter how aggressive they are, they're not going to throw a chair at a student, but it's, it's good for the movie because it keeps you invested and it keeps the conflict up and it really puts you, it puts Andrew up against this incredible antagonist because the, the better the antagonist the better the movie. We've said that many times. And so since Fletcher is such a great dominating antagonist, it makes the conflict of the story that much better. So it's kind of necessary because if the teacher was kind of like pushy, but not a, not a psycho, it would be much less interesting of a movie. So the crazier that Fletcher is, the better the film is. The first film we're going to go over is Whiplash, written and directed by Damien Chazelle, released in 2014. This stars Miles Teller, J.K. Simmons, and Melissa Benoit. A promising young drummer enrolls in a cutthroat music conservatory where his dreams of greatness are mentored by an instructor who will stop at nothing to realize a student's potential. This film won three Oscars. This film is uh, was an excellent breakthrough for him, Giselle, and also for Miles Teller. I mean, he Miles Teller had a great uh, few year span where he did Project X, Spectacular Now, Whiplash, and Divergent, and he really blew up. And he's a very talented actor. I think he has a, a bright future, and he's going to be in the new Top Gun movie, which I'm super excited about. 
And this film, it was visually stunning, and it was really, it's a really simple story. Um, but he, Chazelle, made the stakes as high as possible, and the drama is extreme. And it's really engaging, this entire film. It keeps you visually stunned. Um, the music is fantastic. Uh, three Oscar wins, including J.K. Simmons winning Best Supporting Actor in a Role. He's phenomenal in this movie because you've never seen him do anything like this before. It won editing. It also won sound mixing. And it was nominated for Best Picture and Best Screenplay. And this was a movie that no one heard about. But it took like the festival circuit by storm, like Sundance. I think it it headlined that and won the uh, the best picture award at Sundance. Yeah, it won the audience award, which is an, which is awesome, and it got a ton of exposure. And it's a, an incredible film. And again, it's about a musician, but it's really not about music. It's about obsession. It's about sacrifice, adversity. It's it's a lot about mental health too. I think um, validation, manipulation, and again, overcoming obstacles. And kind of how far would you go? to achieve the biggest dreams in your life. And I think both movies are kind of like that, but this one specifically, like, like we talk about Andrew in this film, like how far does he go to achieve what he eventually, I think, becomes the next Charlie Parker in a way. And he ends up, you know, isolating himself from everybody. He cuts ties with his girlfriend. He he's, uh, isolates his father from his life for the most part. Um, he's he's constantly, conde I mean, he condescends other people. He He's not very sociable. He's actually not a very likable character in a lot of ways. And all he cares about is the approval and validation of Fletcher. What happens is Fletcher rubs off on him. And I think that he, early in the film, he realizes that he should be more like Fletcher if he wants to find success. And if he becomes more like Fletcher, Fletcher will approve of him. I think that uh, Andrew, more than anything, aside from being a great drummer, is he's obsessed with uh, Fletcher's approval, which he's just seeking the entire film and, and fighting for. Just Fletcher to acknowledge that you're good. You, you did a good job which he doesn't do until the very end. And like you said, Andrew is, he is an unlikable person and he kind of becomes an anti-hero, you could say, and a bit of a villain because there's that, there's that moment where um, at the first show when he's still the second drummer and Tanner is the first drummer and um, Tanner puts him in charge of guarding his sheet music while he like uses the bathroom or something. And then Tanner gets back and the sheet music has, has been misplaced. And Andrew says he doesn't know what happened to it and Chazelle didn't show it, but I, I definitely assume that um, Andrew threw out his sheet music because Andrew memorized Whiplash, so he's able to play it from memory, and Tanner can't. And so then um, Fletcher promotes him to play at the show. And so I think that that's an example of Andrew is willing to do whatever he can to achieve his goal. Even even if, if it means bringing other people down. Yeah, I I love that scene. I'm so glad you brought it up because whenever whenever I watch it, I think. Did Andrew get rid of that on purpose? Did he throw it in the trash on purpose? Because he doesn't show it. Chazelle does a few things in this film where they're kind of inexplicable moments where you can assume something happened, but they don't explain it or why did this happen. It's just kind of out of nowhere. Like like obviously that and then the, the sheet music disappearing. Then we're talking about the but the tire of the of the bus getting a flat tire. It's kind of like one of those other inexplicable moments. And then the car accident was another kind of just like out of nowhere moment that affects um Andrew's life and this this entire movie it's a roller coaster up and down and every time I watch it it reminds me more of films like The Aviator, Black Swan, Itonia where these characters have these insane obsessions to their crafts and like you said they'll do anything to achieve those means did Andrew throw that sheet music away on purpose I think it's fun to say that he did and in terms of this movie it could be a very straightforward film it could be kind of like boring in other hands but Chazelle makes it so entertaining 
with conflicts and obviously i think the most iconic scene in this movie is um the rushing or dragging scene where jk simmons character fletcher just berates andrew and you're with you're with andrew in this moment because you're like you can feel the panic because you because you see the panic with andrew and he doesn't know whether he's doing which one and are you talking about his first time in the yeah, new classroom? In the classroom the rushing or dragging scene and fletcher is just not quite my tempo that scene and it's the first real interaction with Fletcher because the first interaction with Fletcher, he's kind of, he seemed like a nice guy. He like said hi to Andrew outside the class and he seemed like, oh, he seems like a pretty cool teacher. And then when he becomes extremely emotionally and verbally abusive towards Andrew in this moment, that's what raises the stakes in this film because Fletcher becomes such a dominating figure in the film. And you can just feel the the panic in and the torment that Andrew's feeling because you're kind of, you're in his shoes and you feel tormented by Fletcher. And I think that's the moment that really takes the audience into the film and engages them more than any other moment in the film. I think, yeah, that too, but there's a few things that lead up to that. So before that, you talked about how in the opening of the movie, Fletcher notices uh, Andrew playing drums and he sees something. I think this moment shows a lot because Chazelle is showing you that obviously Andrew's a talented drummer and Fletcher... You can see the look in his eyes. He's like, this guy's got something. But he doesn't want to tell him yet. Yeah. And he like leaves the room abruptly while he's playing. And it's that fun back and forth. It's like, why'd you stop playing? And your response to, to me asking you why you stopped playing is you play again. So it's actually really funny. Mm-hmm. We get great characterization. But Fletcher is a character that we're constantly learning new things about and more interesting in with him or, or he gets more villainous in before the rushing or dragging thing. I thought you said Russian dragon. I was like, Russian dragon scene. <laughs> Um, he berates the, um, is it a Tanner? A ta- the, no, not, not the drummer. Oh, sorry. So he, he berates the, uh, the brass player. Mm-hmm. So he's like, there's someone out of tune here. And this is before, uh, Andrew's yeah, on the yeah. drums. Like, Someone's out of tune here. So he goes through everybody and he finds this one person who he asked him, he's, this kid's about to cry. He's got tears in his eyes. Like, were you out of, were you out of tune? And he's like, yes. And so he's like, get the hell out of my classroom basically, but in a lot worse way. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, when he leaves the room, he says, you are, you were the one that was out of tune, but because he didn't know that's just as bad. And to him, anyone that is out of tune or, or does something wrong, to him, it's a personal sabotage on his band. He constantly calls the classroom my band. If you're going to sabotage my, my, my band, you're going to get out of here. And then that's kind of like the first time we see what Fletcher's really like, because like you said, before the class starts, seems a lot, he seems he's cool. like, he, he puts his arm on the wall. He's like, hey, man, just have fun out there. Yeah. Oh, cool, man. And then he also, he asks um, Andrew personal questions about his life, like where are you from, are your parents musicians? And that's because the entire film, Fletcher, his entire goal is he sees potential in, in Andrew, but he wants to get everything out of Andrew that he possibly can. He wants to create the next Charlie Parker. That's what Fletcher's entire desire in life is, to create the next great Charlie Parker musician. Yeah, he and- said he alludes to this at the end when they have that drink at that bar, where we, we learn that's Fletcher's goal is to create the, a great musician. Yeah, he says that everyone at Schaefer didn't understand what he was doing. He's a teacher, but that's not really why he's there. And he learns this new information about Andrew and his life to use it to attack him. So this entire film... He's going back and forth with either praising Andrew or attacking him or having Connolly come take his place or having Andrew go back or then having Tanner come back. And he's constantly he, he all these musicians really mean nothing to him because they're all a means to get to Andrew and to get Andrew's potential out. Yeah, I, I think he definitely sees that potential initially, like you said. And so everything that happens is all manipulation by Fletcher because 
first of all, he's obsessed with perfection in terms of his band being perfect because he is also a fan of these icons from the past. He wants to create the next icon. He wants to be able to say, I created Andrew. What's his last name? You know what I mean? And so I think that he Fletcher has spent decades trying to find the next great person. And I'm sure there are so many great musicians that he's encountered and taught, and they never took to his method. And he, he they probably became weak around him, and um, he probably scared them off and really emotionally disturbed them. But with Andrew... He finally has found someone who will take all the shit and he'll take everything that Fletcher does to him and he'll uh, put up with it and try and still try his best to to seek Fletcher's approval and sh- to try and pursue that perfection that Fletcher wants from him. And so with Andrew, he found his perfect student in a lot of ways. This episode is sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use our special coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. If you're looking at our set on YouTube, we hope you're watching it on YouTube because it's a much better experience. And I have a haircut now. Yeah, it looks good. Um, We have all these great posters that MoviePosters.com sent us. These are high quality. The printing is the best you can do. They have all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting, whatever you want. MoviePosters.com can handle it. If you love movies, if you love TV shows, if you're passionate about the media arts, there's no better way to express that passion than to decorate your home in your bedroom with movie posters and TV posters. And so if you want to do that, you've got to go to MoviePosters.com. It's the best place to get your movie posters online. Use our coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. Again, Raiders15 at MoviePosters.com. And again, we're not condoning emotional abuse or trauma. I don't think Chazelle is condoning emotional abuse or trauma to get to create the next Charlie Parker. Obviously, you don't need to do this to create the next great musician. This is, again, just a story, and this is the character of Fletcher. He runs this, like, sort of militaristic world in this classroom, and you can tell as soon as Andrew's in the first time in that classroom. Well, there's a great scene where before he, he gets promoted to that class, he walks by it in the hallway, and it's like this. He's his his normal classroom. It's like gray and dull and like crappy seats. But he walks by this room, and it's got like gold lighting. Yeah, really warm lighting. It's like yeah. it's like I want to be in there. Like my whole goal is to be in there with Fletcher. And then when he's finally in there, um, everyone in the classroom, as soon as Fletcher walks in, they stand up like like it's a drill sergeant, and mm-hmm. they sit down, and then. For a couple of beats, like maybe a whole minute, Fletcher's just walking around the class looking at everybody. And every single musician, no matter how long they've been in that classroom or how many classes they've been there for, they're looking down. Because it looks like Fletcher does this to every one of his musicians. He berates them to try to get the best out of them. It it seems like none of them want to be picked on that day in class. And as soon as like someone gets chosen, they kind of are are more relaxed. And they're Mm -hmm. kind of giggling in the background of what's going on. And I think it's a great show of this character Fletcher because I I I suffice to say that he's not so much a villain. He's a villain for sure, but he does have intentions of greatness. Yeah, he has good intentions, but he just carries out his actions in a poor way, in a questionable way. And I think that Fletcher and Andrew are a lot alike, even if Andrew doesn't want to admit it, because just like Flet- Fletcher seems to be someone who has also sacrificed a normal life to pursue greatness. Because there's actually a shot that they cut from the film um, of Fletcher where he's he sits he's sitting alone in an apartment, like a darkly lit apartment. He's just sitting at a table um, quietly. And it, it they cut it from the film because they didn't want to take away um, Andrew's perspective because the whole film is Andrew's perspective. And so they felt like that took away from his, his viewpoint. So we don't need to show Fletcher on his own. But that showed that Fletcher is alone in his life. 
And because of his relentless pursuit of perfection and greatness, he is he has nothing else in his life. And that's what's happening to Andrew. He's shutting everyone out. He's eliminating every um, connection he has to pursue greatness. And so um, I think that both of these people, their their obsession has caused them to isolate themselves from the rest of the world. Yeah, and I think there are two instances in this film where Chazelle shows you brief glimpses of Fletcher that he has a life outside of this classroom and outside of these students and performances. And one of the scenes is when um, Andrew, after he has the core drumming part and he loses it to Connolly and he like busts into um, Fletcher's office and he's like freaking out on Fletcher and Fletcher seems clearly upset because he was just on the phone and hung up on the phone. And this is when, before we find out that Sean Casey died, which he ends up lying about lit in the next classroom saying that he died in a car accident but really he died by hanging himself mm -hmm. um and then we have another scene where after um andrew basically is a, a witness to take down fletcher uh and he stumbles upon him in that jazz club and we see fletcher outside of the classroom and he's playing uh piano with a jazz quartet and he's playing a very like some somber melancholy beautiful song yeah. and it's the exact antithesis to his personality in the classroom yeah exactly and so it shows that uh, with music he is a he's an artist you know what i mean but in terms of how he treats other people he's a monster and i don't think that it's i think it's a thing of like just because if someone's a horrible person in real life can you appreciate their art in a lot of ways and that's what Fletcher is like and then you see that reveal in the jazz club and and but what happens is Fletcher and Andrew it reach it does reach that breaking point where when he's finally um taken out he's he's fired from the band because um Andrew attacks him at the performance for replacing him and he's kicked out of Schaefer he, he's kicked out of Schaefer that was the boiling point for Andrew like that could be the end of the movie but like you said there's uh, an extended final act of, the, of Chazelle's films where when he stumbles upon Fletcher in the jazz club, it's like such a crazy coincidence. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, it, and it sets up the climax of the film. And so it's a brilliant way where uh, you think the movie is ending and going in a certain trajectory, and then all of a sudden it just takes a 180 and they're back together in a lot of ways. So I thought it was a real fun way to to um show something completely unexpected with the story yeah it's it's such an interesting uh back and forth between these two characters because again every single thing that fletcher does in this film to andrew is done on purpose and it's all done to in fletcher's eyes bring the most potential out of him and try to create that next charlie parker like for example the first thing he does to andrew is he tells him the wrong time to be at the classroom by three hours on purpose so that andrew's sitting there for three hours by himself at his drum kit waiting for the class to start he didn't do that by accident he did that on purpose that's the first instance of messing with him and i mean there are countless examples of that too but even it's also a test yeah it's, yeah again it's a test but even what he does to him at the end like when we after he sees him in the jazz club and then uh, Fletcher invites him to be they have a no, they have a drink together and it's, they seem like like two guys talking yeah. and then he invites him to be the drummer for his his performance because he's headlining the JVC uh, jazz festival and you think oh maybe Fletcher wanted to do this on purpose but really we find out that this is a setup by Fletcher to basically destroy Andrew's career or make Andrew's career. I think for both of them, this is a make or break moment because before they go onto stage, Fletcher turns to his band. He's like, this is the crowd that can either make your career or end it because these people will not forget. And I think what, what um, Fletcher's doing is this is the moment for Andrew 
either you're going to be next Charlie Parker or you're not. This is your final test because when he goes out there and he he doesn't have the right music and he plays a different song, Fletcher goes up to him. He's like, I knew you didn't. I guess you don't have it. But really, this is, again, another test because Andrew leaves the stage to go hug his dad. Then he comes back on stage and he destroys it because this is what Fletcher was trying to do the entire film was to get this performance out of him. Yeah, I agree with you, but I also slightly disagree. I don't think that Fletcher had Andrew on with the intention of possibly seeing the greatness come out of him. I think he, his intention was all nefarious to get him to, to ruin his life because Andrew ruined his life by getting him, by testifying uh, um, anonymously and getting him fired from Schaefer. And so I think that Fletcher, he he set Andrew up to fail. And I think he, he, he I think Fletcher had the intention that he knew he Andrew was going to fail. But then... So I don't think he was like, oh, I'm going to see if this is a final test. Because I don't think Fletcher is the kind of person who would ever jeopardize his own performance. But he, I felt that he wanted revenge so badly, he managed to do it. I think that by accident, this was the moment where it finally allowed Andrew to break through and become great. And so I think that Fletcher, because in that scene, I feel like Fletcher is surprised, obviously, when Andrew keeps playing. Like that was unintentional. And then the great solo happens. And so I think Fletcher, it wasn't his plan to test him. I think it was his plan to just destroy him. And then Andrew turned the tables on him, surprisingly. I mean, you're, you're probably right. I think it's probably maybe a little bit of both because, he, of course, he was trying to destroy his career, which is why he says that before they go perform. Yeah. But I think that also once, maybe once Andrew starts playing that, that the Whiplash song by himself, I think this is when when Fletcher realizes that maybe this is what it took actually. Maybe maybe now I'm going to get what I've always wanted out of this guy. Maybe 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 you're right. He probably was just only wanted failure in his mind, but then he realizes that this is how I created this. Maybe this is how far I had to go. Yeah, and that it's a great moment because then when he recognizes what Andrew's doing and how great he's playing, then he gets excited yeah and he gets the band involved and takes then, his jacket off yeah he takes his jacket off and he's like it's like he, he's like turned on by it you yeah know i mean like his juices are flowing like fletcher is like in it and then you can see that's such a great characterization because that's all he cares about is great music and then once andrew starts playing incredibly well he is just so jazzed about it he's juiced about it and the ending of this film is so brilliant because it the it cuts at the right before the 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 end like right before the end of the song, and Fletcher and, and Andrew are staring at each other. It's that, like we talked about with Giselle, how he ends his movies. And it's right before the finale of the song. And the movie cuts, and it's exciting and still exhilarating. It's like, oh, he, Andrew did it. And him and Fletcher, they're, like, they, they, they're connected now. And it's like it seems like it's a happy ending. But I don't think, I think it's going to be, I think it's actually a, a, a sad ending because... Andrew has sacrificed his humanity to get to this point. He's just, he's completely shut everyone off. He's destroyed his relationships and he's committed to to being Fletcher's protege now. And also, you have to imagine that after this moment, he and Fletcher are going to be working together probably for a while indefinitely also. So, uh, that's Fletcher's not someone you want to connect yourself to, I don't think. He's such a toxic person. And also, it also shows that Andrew is going to end up like Fletcher, a great musician and a great artist, but he's going to be alone, just like Fletcher alone in his apartment. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it kind of tricks you. It seems like it's a, 
amazing uh, happy ending. But ultimately, I think that Andrew's life going forward is not going to be a good life. I disagree because, like I said, before they go onto stage, uh, Fletcher explains that this crowd, you could have a great performance and you're going to get signed. And I think in my eyes that Andrew does two things. The great performance makes him makes this crowd realize that he's an incredible talent. And I think he eventually probably signs with somebody in that audience or with some, Definitely. Some, some kind of musical company, meaning that he parts ties with with Fletcher. And I think he also he reconciles with his father because before this, his father comes back into his life and he he convinces his son to take Fletcher down. And, you know, we have those nice moments where, you know, they, they're. He's always going to the movies with his father while he's in school, and now yeah. they're having a movie and his a crappy apartment by himself. And then, like, he actually he's letting his father back into his life, and that's when when um, Fletcher embarrasses him on stage. He goes and hugs his father, and then he goes back. So I think he's he's starting to reconcile his relationships in his life, and I think he's also put on this great performance. And but I would so I would say sorry. I think he goes he watches a movie with his father because he quit. So that's why. But now. Since he's going to be successful, he's going to isolate his father again. I disagree. I think I think that he's he's find, found out what's important in life because that's also why he calls Nicole. He's like, I've sacrificed personal relationships in my life to be happy. But I think because he's achieved the high-level talent that he's always wanted, that I think he's got that. He's got his, he's starting to build relationships again. I think this is kind of not a continuing of partnership between him and him and uh, Fletcher, I think this is like an ending of the road between them because this is all Fletcher wanted was to create this. Yeah. I think that just this performance, this musician right here was Fletcher's goal. And I think that they're just going to be done. I think Fletcher will now move on to create the next great musician because I think they're going to go separate ways personally. Yeah, that's that's a good point. They, they uh, He's obviously going to get signed. So they I guess they aren't going to be together a lot. But I just think that it shows that Andrew is going to be like Fletcher. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah, what he's going to be obsessive for the rest of his life. We can agree to disagree. I think, I think it's an ambiguous ending. I think he'll yeah. be obsessive, but also I think he's going to let people in his life more. Yeah. Because it he's, could a, be, yeah. he's, he's achieved it now. He's, yeah. a, he's at that level. He could be. Well, it could go either way. That's what's great about the ending. That's why it works so well. And I also just want to go real quick back to the scene where they're in the jazz club. And you, you said they're having that drink together and they're having a normal conversation. And I really love Fletcher's monologue in their back and forth here because Fletcher's talking about his his style and teaching and how he got taken down and this is before he tells Andrew that he knew it was him um and he admits you know his his style was aggressive and abusive and emotionally harmful and he says he tells those stories again you know about Jones and the and uh the other musician where if Jones didn't throw the symbol at Charlie he never would have became Charlie Parker and there are no more harmful words than in the English language than good job but then Andrew counters do you think you go too far and I think this is a, a great example of this film. Again, it's not just about music. It's about obsession and a lot to do with mental health and, and psychological manipulation. And did Fletcher go too far? Absolutely. In his classrooms, he goes too far. And it's fair to say that you don't need to do that to create the next Charlie Parker. But maybe, maybe you do need to do that. Maybe you do need to do it to an extent, not throwing chairs at people and not... Uh, demeaning people psychologically, but pushing somebody. And again, I think obstacles are the greatest element for human ambition. You need obstacles in life to achieve immense goals, I think. Yeah, you need to fail. You need to fail. Exactly. To, to succeed. You have to taste failure and you need to taste rejection. And that's that's obviously the main theme of the movie, I think. And also, the, the name Whiplash, it actually refers to a lot of um, things in the film. So 
the title Whiplash refers to obviously the first jazz piece in Fletcher's band. That's what it's called, Whiplash. And then also Andrew experiences Whiplash when he gets into that car accident. The beating of a drum is similar to lashing of a whip, the action of it. And then Whiplash is, is the abuse that he suffers under Fletcher. I think this is a phenomenal movie. It's one of the best directorial debuts I've seen probably in my life. It's it's really great. Um, it deserved all the recognition it got. And I'm excited to see the rest of Damien Giselle's career because I think all his movies are fantastic. He's going to make a silent film, silent era film. That's pretty. Oh, the the new one that's coming out? They didn't, they didn't start production yet. I thought they did. No. It's called Babylon. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it's called yeah. Babylon. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this is a phenomenal movie. Even if you're not a jazz fan, I think you'll become a jazz fan after you watch this movie because you actually, there's a, a lot of incredible music by Justin Hurwitz and great movie. Great job. And now it's time to introduce our special guest, Forrest Mitchell. What's up, man? Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. It's good to be here. It's good to see you. How's uh, how's COVID going? And congratulations on your engagement, pal. It's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I know. It's uh, I've been trying to make some big adult moves, you know, yeah. during COVID. It can be it can be kind of it's a tough time, but we got a cat, so <laughs> <laughs> two actually. So <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. So Force, you're a jazz musician and drummer, and uh, this episode's on Whiplash and La La Land. So, what do you think about those two movies, Whiplash and La La Land, in general? Uh, I think they're fun. Kind of uh, <laughs> definitely taking a creative license. Uh, mm-hmm. on, on like the jazz world. I think, um, you know, Whiplash definitely like dramatizes some things a little bit and La La Land, I don't know. I think a lot of people think of jazz as something that's still moving forward and, and it's still, it, you know, it's less about um, money and more about just a passion for either like maintaining this old art form or like pushing it forward. And then Whiplash, I mean, obviously it was just fun to see a jazz drummer featured as as like a main character. Yeah, because that's your whole life. So how long have you been drumming for? Oh man, so I've been drumming since the fifth grade. So I don't, I can't even do math. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a scientist. It's like 19 years. <laughs> for yeah, it's been it's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah, and, have, and have you ever had a teacher or an instructor like Fletcher and Whiplash, who obviously he's dramatized and he, obviously no one slapped you in the face or or threw a chair at you. But do you have any teachers who who were intimidating t- towards you and that you were like intimidated by? You know, personally, my drum teachers have all been super patient and just very like positive and encouraging. Um, I think a lot of them were just happy to see young people into jazz and and have an interest in jazz and want to keep it going. Uh, I would say the only times I ever felt intimidated by an instructor was like if we had like a section leader come in and work with the jazz man at school. Some of these were like some pretty old school cats that would definitely like hold a hard line and call you out if you were, if you were slipping, but it was never like any sort of spread. I never, I didn't feel uh, like worried for my well being or anything like that. Mm, yeah. I think it's like a relic of the past of maybe what classrooms kind of in this high end environments were sort of like mm-hmm. to have that like military dictator teacher kind of come in and, and whip everyone into shape that way. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that in terms of jazz, I think they use it as a vehicle to tell stories in both of these movies rather than the movie being about jazz. There's great jazz music in all these in both of these films, but I think it's more to tell the stories about the characters and their obsessions, their dreams and their love. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously the the drive is always there and a lot of it comes from through competition with other musicians. Uh trying to battle out for those like top shares, especially in school and like in the back in college and high school when I'm playing in in big bands still. 
um, there's always that competition to try to keep an edge over the other players. But in general, it's a really like positive, uh, or at least in my experience, it's always been a very positive. Everyone's there to, to, to have fun and, and just work on their craft and, and get better together. And I have a question about like, in the movie, Andrew constantly, you know, he's bleeding all over his drum kit. He's got those vicious uh, uh, blisters that he's putting Band-Aids on. I know you, I'm sure you've talked to me about experience with blisters and we have a, a friend, a mutual friend who's a vibraphonist who has like gnarly blisters on his fingers from those mallets that he puts in between his fingers. But how realistic is that in terms of like bleeding all over your drum kit and dunking your hands in buckets of ice? <laughs> how many times have you done that in your life? <laughs> yes, yeah, so, I think that's, probably one of the most famous scenes that a lot of jazz musicians love to joke about because um, it's so over the top intense. Uh, I, I would say that if you're playing hard enough and probably wrong enough to where you're bleeding on the drum set, you should stop immediately and like get your hands checked out. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, in the, in the early days of me practicing stick control, you would build some light calluses. Your fingers might be a little sore, um, but they build pretty quickly. And then after that, there's, there shouldn't really be any pain. I mean, I've talked to some session drummers who, or, or touring drummers that are playing, you know, long shows day in and day out um, on long tours and they can build some pretty gnarly blisters, but I've never had my hands bleeding except one time when I accidentally hit my own hand with a drumstick. <laughs> I, I think what happened, I think what happened in the movie is that Miles Teller, he has drumming in his history, but um, I think he only trained for like a couple of months before the film. So maybe he didn't build up the calluses and the strength in his hands. And I think there were scenes like that where the director just had him keep drumming for hours and hours, which would be like unrealistic. But I think he, they did it so long where he did start bleeding for, in real life. So do you think that it, it's really him bleeding? It's really, it is really him bleeding. But I think that like any other drummer would have stopped, but they just did it for for the shot. I, gotcha. think. I thought it was in the script, like bleeds yeah. all over drum set no i think it's because like miles teller i think it's because his hands weren't strong enough gotcha. and they started bleeding. That, that makes sense and they were like yeah. oh let's put it in the movie but then also like it's also a little unrealistic in terms of what a real drummer would go through yeah but maybe because it was happening on set they're like this this works for us and yeah. they kind of just have to f shoot through it yeah i think that's my that might have been their thinking in it mm. but it's obviously a little a little extreme yeah it makes total sense i mean it creates great dramatic effect for sure yeah. and it's definitely a memorable scene um, I think most, most drummers, yeah, if they're starting to feel a lot of pain or it's like, oh, that's actually opening up to be a cut, you're going to probably stop. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, he had some crazy drive. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, a lot of people aren't familiar with jazz. And I'm sure when they watch the movie, they think it seems realistic. But in terms of jazz, so how would you define jazz and what does it mean to you once it meant to you your entire life, pursuing it and, and listening to it? Oh, man. Well, yeah, I mean, jazz was one of the – was pro, well, jazz fusion specifically was, was what got me into music. I don't know. Jazz is – uh, I love it because you, especially when you're playing it, you're able to express yourself unlike a lot of other uh, types of music. I mean, obviously every, every musician's expressing themselves when they play, but because it's based on improvisation, uh, it's just, you know, when you're playing live and, and it's, it's all coming together, you enter this another, under this other state of being. And it's, I think it's similar to when you know, people meditate or, um, you know, like get in the zone, maybe in like some crazy sports situations, but it really does feel like you're in this other place and it's just flowing through you. And I think it goes with, with a lot of different types of music, obviously, but uh, with jazz, with the improvis improvisational piece, that's what drew me into it. Well, it sounds just like, did you see Soul, Pixar's movie Soul? I just recently saw it, yeah. It's just like that. So you basically described kind of like what he goes through in that movie when he goes into the that other plane because he's in like he's losing his soul in the music, which is what it sounds like jazz musicians experience, which is pretty fascinating, really cool. Yeah, no, and, and just, you know, communicating with other musicians. I mean, you can sit down at a session and then have just met 
these musicians and you play a piece of music and you're you're learning how you know, each other's style and you're playing off each other and it's just a really like powerful experience and way to communicate it's that's interesting is that something in the movie that you thought was kind of missing because there's so much collaboration is involved in jazz and andrew the character is very much isolated and he doesn't even have any other friends in the bands that he plays with so is that something you saw as i'm in i'm in i've been in lots of jazz bands and you've probably made good friends on the collaborations is that something that you think the film missed out on Totally. I mean, and, and that's some of the, the the best stories that you'll hear from from, you know, uh, musicians of the past. Um, and and some of the best experiences I've had has all been because of the relationships that you build with your bandmates. I mean, a lot of my closest friends today are friends that I made from elementary, you know, in middle school jazz band, um, mm -hmm. you know, um, and have spent so many different time, you know, so much time learning our instruments and developing our craft and listening to music, talking about music. Um, that's like the the best part. That makes sense. Great question. Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> That's a great answer too. I have a question for you also. What's the best instrument? The best instrument? Oh man. Well, I don't know. Uh, you, you can uh, you can pop a drum beat and get a get a, a room of people dancing. That's a good point. It's true. It's the coolest looking instrument for sure too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. And it's usually the craziest person in the band too is the drummer. Uh, that, I'm not going to disagree with that either. <laughs> <laughs> Although drums really suck to move around. Like if I could do it all over again, I probably would have just like played trumpet. Oh yeah, the amount of times I've seen you lugging your gear around is just like ridiculous. You need a whole room for it. Yeah, first to the gig, last to leave. You know, the trumpet can show up super late, like hungover. Like, all right, let's do it. And then you, all right, dude, nice, nice, sell phone, I'm out. And I'm packing all this crap up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the sacrifice. What's the best performance you ever put on? Because Whiplash ends with that infamous climax where Andrew just lets out his, his greatest performance. He kind of becomes Charlie Parker in a way, which is what Fletcher's trying to drive out in the whole film. And what's your greatest performance? And have you ever had like an instructor try to draw something out of you like very intensely? Well, you know, it, that's such a, that's a really good question. It's a really hard question to answer because there's been so many magical moments over the years. One that's coming to mind because of, of the reference in the movie was actually the final, uh, so in high school, I went to Berkeley High School, which has a world-renowned jazz program. Um, and it's where I really, my foundation in music really got built and my interest really intensified. Um, but the instructor who was there, uh, Charles Hamilton, kind of legend, he retired the year that my, uh, I was graduating. And in this particular, my particular year was uh, a lot of us were in the jazz ensemble and we're all seniors about to graduate. And that summer, after our senior year, um, we did a tour in Europe. And the final show of that tour, uh, which was gonna be the last time we were all gonna play together and the last band and performance that Charles Hamilton was gonna be directing, you know, high school jazz band. Um, uh, the, the last song of the set ends with an open drum solo. <laughs> oh, sick. <laughs> and uh, I remember, I remember, yeah, exactly. I remember we were all just super locked in and it was like nighttime. We were playing basically in a castle in Italy. <laughs> um, and it got to the drum solo part. Everybody had killed it all night. The crowd was going crazy. And he just pointed to me for the for the drum solo. And he just kept pointing just to just basically keep keep going, just keep going, keep going. I can remember hearing the cymbals echoing off of like these ancient brick walls and the crowd just like cheering throughout the whole solo. Um, and then it ending and we all end on this one huge climactic note or chord and just how that felt because it was such a happy moment, but also such a sad moment, intense moment, because 
I knew this was gonna be the last time that this group was going to play together and like kind of an end of an era. Um, but yeah, that was, a, that was a moment where I was kind of like not conscious, but also really trying to take it in and like, remember every second of what was happening. That sounds insane. Well, how, what percentage of you would you say, like not every drum solo, but when you're playing jazz, like of it is improvised. I mean, you know, a lot of it is memorized figures, um, either stuff that you've heard and then kind of internalized or fills that you've practiced over time. But at a certain at a certain point, you're just throwing them all in combination in what sounds good to you, what feels right. Um, so it's like a bag of tricks that you have and you just throw it out there? It's a bag of tricks, but then you get to this other place and you're doing stuff that you might have never really done before or especially in, in a certain combination. Um, and you're just like kind of riding this wave of emotion and uh, just whatever is coming through you you're not really you're not consciously thinking about oh i'm going to do this this move next you might have a, a general arc of how you want your solo to go um depending on where it is in the song is at the end is in the middle how long the solo is it how am i feeling that day what kind of song is it um so you might have a general idea of how you want your overall solo arc to be but what actually happens within that solo uh is different every time and it's just it's just a stream of consciousness basically so cool love it it's awesome I think, I think we're good. I think we're good. Thanks yeah. so much for coming on the show, Forrest Mitchell. Awesome job. No, thanks for having me. Great to great to finally make a, an appearance. Yeah, I haven't seen you since COVID started. I know it's been a while. I know, I know. We'll have to we'll have to figure out some sort of uh, socially distant hang. Yeah, and, we'll uh, miss you guys. Next up, La La Land, written and directed again by Damien Chazelle, released in 2016. This film stars Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. While navigating their careers in Los Angeles, a pianist and an actress fall in love while attempting to reconcile their aspirations for the future. This film won six Oscars, including Best Actress for Emma Stone, Best Directing for Damien Chazelle, Cinematography by Linus Sandgard, Music by Justin Hurwitz, Original Song, and Production Design, as well as being nominated for, I think, eight other Oscars. So I think got almost every Oscar category nomination. Or yeah, win, pretty much. Which is insane. Yeah, La La Land is a, it's a fantastic musical and it's a lot of fun. It has great romance and great character development and conflict and transformation. Like we said earlier, the main theme of this movie is dreams and everyone has a dream in a certain way and what makes this movie so relatable for, for me personally and for you is because we live in LA and we, we're pursuing dreams and that's what these characters are doing and so many people in the city are doing the same thing. They're pursuing some kind of dream and they're trying, they're sacrificing, they're trying to find success with their art and their passion. And that's what these two characters are doing. And I mean, it's the, it's the ultimate LA movie in a lot of ways, because that's the city is filled with transplants from all over the country. And uh, the, this movie follows two characters who are struggling between, should I completely commit to this passion of mine? Or can I do it halfway while I also have to share time with this relationship. And I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with because in order to achieve greatness in a lot of ways, you have to uh, commit entirely to your craft and you have to sacrifice. There's a, the line I there's a saying I like, it's sacrifice the present for the future. And so to achieve greatness, you have to suffer for a short amount of time in the present and you have to give up a lot of things. But then in, in the long run, you'll be happy and you'll you'll achieve what you, your goal was and so i think these two characters are struggling with committing to that yeah i think uh the term is delayed gratification where you know you're sacrificing hours of your life weekends i mean we work every single day hours every day on this show because that's 
we we want to achieve greatness with this show and our futures. So I think that's one of the things that we can relate to very much with this movie and these characters is, you know, do you you have to balance your personal relationships, your your hobbies and your time because again, in order to become great at your craft or whatever it is, you have to commit. You have to commit time to it. And it doesn't make you a bad person if you decide that you you think you need to just pursue one thing at a time rather than relationships. Unlike, I think, what Andrew does in Whiplash is, you know, a, a hurtful thing to Nicole where he just cuts it off without even thinking about her. But that's what he thinks he has to do to achieve his goals. He's very cold about it. Yeah. And um, this film's a little different because both these characters, Mia and Sebastian, they try. They try to make it work with their relationship. They try to do it th at the same time, uh, focusing on their relationship as well as their dreams and their passions. But it does end up making them making the relationship fall apart, especially when Sebastian gets that gig with Keith and, you know, he's spending a lot of time away from home. He thinks it's a good decision because he can financially support both of them in their dreams. Sebastian makes a lot of decisions in this film where he puts himself up against the relationship or without thinking about what Mia wants or what Mia thinks about these decisions. Like Mia never wanted him to take that gig because she knew that it wasn't what he wanted in his heart. He knew that it didn't make him happy. He was miserable with that gig, despite how fin financially successful it made him. He only took the gig because he overheard her talking on the phone with her mom about how she kind of like lied to her mom saying like, yeah, he's he's like full-time in, in, in supporting, like he has a full-time thing. She was lying to her mom to ease her mom from worry. And then Sebastian in the other room when he heard this, he that that's that was the influence he he had to join this band because it was a steady job and i mean people like when we're in relationships um the other person can influence our decisions because we're trying to please them and we want to make them happy and that's what sebastian does he takes the gig because he thinks it's what she wants for him and so he's choosing the relationship over himself and his passion but also he's not taking into account how she feels about yeah, the gig what she really feels yeah. so he thinks that he has the the only kind of motive or perception of the relationship and he's kind of in control of it in a way in sort of a way not complete control but um again that's what leads to that fight in the diner when he comes and surprises her is they're going back and forth and mia says something like you never asked me what i thought about it yeah because he never did yeah she's worried that he has changed and sacrificed his his passion and his love for his art form and now he's going to be touring in a pop band for who knows how long and this is what happens in a lot of relationships where if things aren't properly communicated and if we're making assumptions, that's what happened in the in the conflict was Sebastian made the assumption that she wants him to have a full-time thing. And then when he when he had the taste of success, he thought it was a good thing. And he thought it's what he what she wanted for him, but she he didn't realize that she just wanted him to be happy doing what he loves, even if it's even if he's broke. And that's why he says that line where you only love me when I when I was a bum, like when I didn't have when I wasn't successful. And that's what he thought, but he was completely wrong because they didn't communicate that. You yeah, know what she I mean? says something like, "When when have you ever cared what anyone thinks about you?" Yeah, which is why now that he started to take that into effect. And this is probably Emma Stone's career-defining role, and she's phenomenal in this movie. She's an incredibly talented actress. She has a terrific job dancing, singing acting in this film um hits so many roles and like she's she plays this great character where she's like acting while acting or auditioning as an actor as an actor and it's really fun to see her perform in that way which you don't see very often and then Gosling is always great as in every performance he does but Miles Teller was originally you know 
thought of for this movie by Damien Giselle and kind of written for him and offered to him, but Miles Teller turned it down because he wanted a lot more money. I think it only paid like $4 million. Oh, yeah, that's right. But he wanted like 15 or something. You're like $10 million, and Damien Giselle's like, we can't afford that. And yeah. so that's why uh, Teller dropped out. Also, Emma, Wa- Emma Stone, uh, also Emma Watson was offered, but she wanted more money too. No, she did Beauty and the Beast instead. But I think she wanted more money, right? No, she turned it down to do Bell. Okay, never mind. Yeah. So she turned it down. But I think they both. But I mean, she she was a, she was Bell. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a hard decision because I think I think Miles Teller definitely would have knocked this role out of the park. It seems like that character definitely fits his persona and style of acting as well. Yeah. Because he pulls off comedy really well. Like he's done like like War Dogs and Project yeah, X. Yeah. So you know he can be like that charming, sarcastic likable personality so he definitely could have pulled it off but um sebastian's I'm, also brash too. yeah exactly yeah and Go- i think gosling was perfect and, and emma stone and gosling have so much chemistry this is their third film together they were fourth no third yeah oh. <laughs> this is their third film together they did crazy stupid love gangster squad and then la la land and so they've been a couple three times it's and it's it's evident they seem to have a great relationship and they can translate it onto screen really well and with them in all of their movies well except for gangster squad but in crazy stupid love in this when they when they have their back and forth it's like it feels like a real couple talking you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it feels it feels like a real a real relationship a lot of the time and they really they feed off each other and their relationship obviously is the the centerpiece of this film and every relationship goes through transitions and uh and it's ups and downs and uh this film um Chazelle and his production team and cinematographer, they used colors to also depict the relationship. And so in the first act of the film, with the wardrobe and backgrounds, you'll see Mia and Sebastian are wearing primary colors. So Mia, like that that scene with her girlfriends and they have that song, the dresses they're wearing is a primary red, primary blue, primary yellow, and green. So all primary colors. Same thing with Sebastian. He's wearing the blue suit. And then... You'll see that in the first act because the two characters aren't connected. So primary colors, they're not blended together to make other colors yet. But they're used to make other colors. You know, red, red, yellow, and blue. And so when when Mia and Sebastian begin dating and they become getting connected, then the color palettes will change where you'll see the sunset when they have that famous dance and the sunsets behind them. The sunset's a blending of primary colors because it's blue at the top and then red on the bottom and it blends into a purple. And so you have the two primary colors blending together you have the two characters connecting together and then also there's the jazz club um in the summer montage when she's dancing and he's playing piano and the jazz club is lit all orange and that's a blending of yellow and red those two primary colors together because they're connected so the coloring is a, a not a primary color and then for the city of stars song when they're in the apartments they and they begin singing the song at his piano there's that green lighting pouring in through the windows and green also is a blending of two primary colors, yellow and blue, because they're connected, they're a couple, and so the colors are connected. But then when they begin falling out of their relationship, the primary colors start coming back, and especially in the final scene in the jazz club when when Sebastian is, owns the jazz club and the light in the jazz club, it's blue and red, two primary colors, the neon colored lights, because they're not connected anymore, so the primary colors are back. And so they use color as a way to also translate these the stages of their relationship. That's incredible. And then there's a lot of great music in this film. Justin Hurwitz, again, knocked this movie out of the park and great composer. And I love the music he makes in all of his films. I love First Man too. 
Um, Ryan Gosling actually plays piano in this film. No finger doubles. He does all the, all the piano work in this movie. He spent four months learning how to play every day until he got it down. And what he did was he can't read music. Um, he had minimal experience. It takes a long time to learn how to read music. So, so what he did was he memorized the songs that he had to perform, which you know is how he became so good at it. And he's a he's a musical guy. I mean, he he's in the Mickey Mouse Club as a kid. He has a band. We've all seen that. Uh, the oh the, the, the videos of him dancing with the, <laughs> the with, on stage crazy pants. as a kid. So he was a you know a child prodigy artist, and he got offered one of those boy band gigs like in sync, but turned it down to pursue acting. Yeah, he does have a cool, interesting like. Uh, Dead Bones band, yeah. like yeah. yeah, and uh, um, he's a very talented guy. He actually can sing very well too, which we we get a glimpse of too. But he practiced his butt off to play piano, and he does all the songs by memory in this film. He does that for a lot of his roles, and um, like for example, like Place Beyond the Pines, he learned how to ride the motorcycle, and and he had never ridden a motorcycle before. And in that film, he does all of the riding except for like one moment of stunt driving, the death ball. Yeah, thing. yeah, he does everything else. And the this the motorcycle instructor, he uh, there's this great interview where he said he's he he had like a month to train Gosling to to become a, a, a established professional rider, um, and in such a short amount of time it was impossible he thought. And the instructor said he's at a he's at a one starting, and so I think that with enough work he can become a three. But then he said by the end of the training and by the time they started filming he was a seven. So he's he's obviously a, a quick learner. And has a knack for picking up skills pretty quickly. I think like Christian Bale is the same way, and so this, he's just a, a all around extremely talented person. Which is like he's a triple threat in this film: acting, singing, and dancing. And he's just a, an unbelievable talent. And there's a reason why he is one of the most beloved actors working right now. I think he's a highly committed guy too. Like yeah. he's like almost like Tom Cruise level commitment. And like you said, Christian Bale. I, th- I don't think people see that too much. In it's because he's a private person. Yeah, he, but he's, yeah, he's very personal life. But he does commit intensely to his roles, and you can see it in his performances. And I think everyone can relate to La La Land in a way. Again, chasing dreams, and this film has that like magical quality to it. It seems like a fairy tale in a lot of ways. A lot of times we're watching with the music and the dancing, the cinematography, which is phenomenal. Like one of my favorite shots I've seen in years is when the the camera jumps into the pool in that in that yeah, uh, yeah. musical in the beginning. Yeah, and yeah. Giselle, like I said earlier, he adds a lot of magic surrealism, which is some the stuff you'll see on theaters on the stage. Yeah. And so he and other filmmakers have done it too. Like um, Joel Wright did it with Anna Karenina. That film, there's, yeah, that's all, a phenomenal it, it production feels, design. Yeah, it's a, it's like a blending of theater with film. And sets changing. And yeah, everything, you're yeah. in a theater the whole time. Whereas this, he Giselle didn't do that, but he brought the elements of how sets can change and, and amazing things can happen out of nowhere on, on stage. Like for example, like that that famous dance when they they're dancing in in the stars and that final montage dance when they're both imagining what their lives could have possibly been life been like and the stages are constantly changing the wardrobes changing they're going through all these different environments and it's a blending of uh theater musical theater with music with film musicals and i think that's why uh, people really adore this film because it they people who love musicals they grew up doing musicals in school um they performed in them and and they still uh, love them whenever a film celebrates that um they really appreciate it and these characters are so interesting because, again, we talked about it earlier. Sebastian's kind of like this dinosaur. He's, like, stuck in the past, and he all he thinks about and talks about are these legends. Like, when his sister sits on that stool, he's like, this this guy, that was his stool. He sat on the stool. You can't sit on the stool and stuff like that. And and that's, again, why when he gets that gig with Keith, it's Keith, Keith. he's just he throws it away because 
obviously with the fight with Mia, but also because it's it's destroying him inside because he's a, such a purist and such a traditionalist. And Mia is a similar, uh, kind of a similar stuck position we talked about where she's sort of in that actor limbo trying to get auditions and not finding success. And I think this is very relatable for people, just like Whiplash is very relatable too. And we all have been in points in our life where we seem stuck or we're, we're worried we will never achieve what we have set out to achieve. And again, you said that the main theme of this film is dreams, but also I think it's love. It's dreams versus love. You know, how far will you be able to achieve? How far can you go in your pursuit of dreams if you're also in love with somebody and also spending this much time with them? And it's again about sacrifice and versus distraction. I don't mean to say distraction in a, in a bad way, but you know. And like there are, I mean, it's not saying that you can't be in a relationship and find success. Exactly, which yeah. I think is why that ending montage at the end is so powerful because it, it, it shows you that could they have done what they did? Could they have achieved their goals while staying together? And I think that the montage at the end kind of shows it might've been possible. I think it's I think it's just a dream, yeah, and a, and just imagination for them because what happens is they 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 break up and then there's five years later the final scene where um, Mia is a famous actor and Sebastian, well, we should talk about how she got the gig though I know I'm, I'm okay, getting into that and Sebastian owns his jazz club he always talked about and uh, we go through these transitions in life where it's like when you meet someone maybe it's just not the right time in your life. You know what I mean? To be with them. And it could maybe work down the future, but at this moment in their lives when they're together at first, they both realize that um, in order to become the complete versions of themselves that they want to be, they have to be apart in this situation. And they both pretty much tell each other that, and they both give each other like permission and, and keep each other in check because um, first, Sebastian um, is told by Mia that He'll, his club will be successful because he's so passionate about it. And he doesn't think anyone likes jazz, but she's like, but since you're so passionate about it, that will be infectious and other people will like it. And they'll want to go to your club because you love it so much. And people, um, people enjoy other people who are passionate about things and that will rub off on people. So it will be successful. And that's what he needed to hear. And then for Mia, first she, when she gets that, when the casting director calls about, uh, doing the audition after seeing her her uh, um one person play um sebastian drives out to to idaho to, to or iowa one of those one, i states one, one of those and um to tell her about the the audition that the casting director wants her to go on and she has this problem where it, she's got to this point where she doesn't think she's good enough anymore she's been rejected so many times and she's like who cares like so what if this person wants me to audition like maybe i just i don't have it i no one has seen anything in me for so long Maybe I just, it was a mistake to come out here. And then Sebastian says that uh, she ha she has to commit and she has to do it because it's her dream. It's what she's always wanted to do. And so she has to try. She can't give up. And then when she does have a good audition and she's possibly up for the role, he tells her on that bench at Griffith Park, like, you have to commit to this completely in order to make it happen. And he they both pretty much give each other permission in like the, the pep talk they they needed to uh, to pursue their goals. Yeah, and then we have the the great ending of this movie. It's so powerful where um, Mia's made it. She's uh, achieved her dreams. She's a successful actress. You know, she goes to the coffee shop she used to work at on set, and the, the girl behind the counter is like, oh, my God, it's this actress. It's actually an, the identical shot. Yeah. Exactly the same exact framing. And then uh, her and her husband, they go out, and they walk into that 
jazz club and then she sees the sign that says sebs and she's like oh my god and she designed the sign yeah yeah. so she's the one that came up with that which is like kind of the final cherry on the top of the of Mm -hmm. the ending i think and you know they sit down and then and he didn't do chicken on a stick yeah (laughs) (laughs) and then um they make eye contact and uh while he's on stage and then we have this beautiful montage he plays the love theme first yeah yeah he plays the love theme then they have that eye contact and then we cut to this montage which is basically the, the ending of the film and it's kind of it's a a reenactment of what their lives could have been like. And I think it's debatable. Is it Mia's vision? Is it Seb's vision? Is it both of theirs? I, I kind of think it's Mia's vision maybe because she seems to want to be the one that it comes out of the vision or the consciousness of what's happening. And there, but I mean, I think it, it can go yeah, both, wide, yeah, both ways. Practically it's like, it looks like it's her, but yeah. I think it's both of them. Yeah. Um, and there, there are a few important moments in this montage that show, could they have made it work? So, in the montage, Seb kisses Mia after he gets fired so at that restaurant. Yes, yeah. yeah. So Seb kisses Mia after he gets fired instead of angrily bumping into her at that at that restaurant where he gets fired yeah. for not playing Christmas yeah. music. Um, Seb also says no to Keith's offer at the bar to come join his band. It's actually pretty funny. He's like, hey, get out of yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Seb doesn't miss Mia's one-person play, which is a very important part. And the, uh, the shot's hilarious where Gosling's the first one up. And he's like clapping vigorously. Mm-hmm. And then they stay together after Mia auditions. Is that beautiful silhouette, black and white shot of her getting the audition? And they hug, and then he he stays with her, and they stay together. And he goes to Paris with her. And then we have this new kind of reality of what could have happened if these things happen. And Mia and Seb get married. Uh, they have like those those fake home videos. They have a child, um, and they go to that club in Paris. They go to that jazz club, and they're very still much in love. And it's so powerful because. It doesn't show. It's not really fantasy, you know. This could have happened. You can see how if they didn't break it off, if if Seb didn't make those decisions and chose different, made different choices in the relationship, they they could have stayed together. But personally, I think that I don't think they could have either achieved their goals together if they stayed together. I think it would have just been one of them would have been successful. Yeah, and that's why it's like. It's easy to like look back on the past and be like, oh, what if I did that? What if I did this? So that's what the fantasy is if things were different and they acted differently in those situations. But the reason why I think it's a fantasy and is be- and it would have never happened is because they weren't ready for the relationship back then. Like I said earlier, they weren't. it wasn't the right time for them. Sometimes you, people are just not supposed to be together in that moment in their lives. And because... If they had been ready, they would have made those decisions, but neither of them were ready for the relationship. That's why those interactions happened those ways. So I don't think it ever would have worked out for them. And I love the way Chazelle wrote and directed this because you can see plenty of directors would have just had like, they have like a conversation instead of this montage. Maybe maybe after Gosling, maybe after um, Sebastian gets off stage, her husband like goes to the bathroom and she walks up to them and they're at the bar and they have they talk about this and they reconcile with a with dialogue which I'm sure would have been nice but it's not as powerful as as showing the audience this incredible fantasy and this incredible dream of expressing all the emotions that they're feeling in that moment with with visuals instead of, so like show don't tell show instead of telling which we talk about a lot in the podcast like cut the dialogue let's just let's just see the feelings yeah and that's a great point. And it's just that great ending of the last two shots where they look at each other and they both, you can see like there's regret and, and, and loss and despair in their eyes. And then um, Sebastian smiles and then she smiles back. And they kind of, they acknowledge that 
they do still love each other, but it just wasn't meant to be. But they it it's 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 a great ending because they accepted it, being able to accept that it didn't work out, and that's life. And then it's that great shot where Emma Stone just turns back and leaves, and then it cuts to black. Yeah, and they do that nod. Yeah, and I, I love the way Chazelle ends all of his movies because he doesn't let you experience your emotions during the movie. He forces you to experience those emotions as the credits are rolling. He waits until the very end, final shot, boom. Now you get to experience everything that you're feeling rather than for like five minutes, 10 minutes of a, of a long ending, you get to experience it all. And I love that because it makes you talk about it more. And I'm sure everyone who left the theater like us when we saw it, we're like, oh my God, that ending was incredible. Like, why? I can't believe he ended it like that. Yeah, all three of the movies, yeah, same way. And this is this is a fantastic film, and I mean, I, I I really as a musical I really adore it, and they did a great job. The production, directing, the acting, the songs are awesome, um, and it's just a great film. Want to do some trivia for both films? Yeah, Whiplash was filmed and shot in only 19 days, and during more during more intense practice scenes, director Chazelle wouldn't yell "cut" so that Miles Teller would keep drumming until he exhausted himself out. Damien Giselle couldn't get funding for the movie, so instead he turned it into a short film and submitted it into the Sundance Film Festival in 2013, and it ended up being very successful in winning the Short Film Jury Award and got funding soon after, and actually the short film also stars um, J.K. Simmons as Fletcher. According to composer Justin Hurwitz in La La Land, the piano performances were originally recorded by pianist Randy Kerber during pre-production, but Ryan Gosling spent such an immense amount of time training and learning the music by heart that by the time filming began, Gosling was able to play all the piano sequences seen in the film without the use of hand double or CGI. In La La Land, Whiplash, two phenomenal films from a very talented young director, Damien Chazelle. I can't wait to see the rest of his career. Um, I, again, we're not giant musical fans, but La La Land's terrific. We love Whiplash. These are great movies. And if you're a fan of Chazelle's movies and you haven't seen First Man, get on that because I think that's his best movie. Yeah, agreed. They're all three great films. First Man's my favorite as well. But for musical films, these are some of the best made recently. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost podcast. Hit that subscribe button and notification bell. Listen to the audio formats of Raiders of the Lost podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast.